I don't know who needs to hear this, but we have just quietly released the first episode of our long-awaited audiobook adaption of Jane Austen's Persuasion. We've submitted it to all the usual streaming platforms, so go and search for it where you listen to podcasts to see it, to see it, to find it, to listen to it. I think that's the point. Podcasts, you don't use your eyes, you use your ears. Anyway, it's going to be available there soon, so you should go and find it um, and see if it's available yet. For more info about the podcast, visit our website, which is www.bnt.org.au. Chapter 17. Elizabeth related to Jane the next day what had passed between Mr. Wickham and herself. Jane listened with astonishment and concern. But, dearest Lizzie, I know not how to believe that Mr. Darcy could be so unworthy of Mr. Bingley's regard. And yet, it was not in Jane's nature to question the veracity of a young man of such amiable appearance as Wickham. The possibility of his having endured such unkindness was enough to interest all her tender feelings, and nothing remained, therefore, to be done but to think well of them both, to defend the conduct of each, and throw into the account of accident or mistake whatever could not be otherwise explained. They have both been deceived, I dare say, in some way or other, of which we can form no idea. Interested people have perhaps misrepresented each to the other. It is in short impossible for us to conjecture the causes or circumstances which may have alienated them without actual blame on either side. Very true indeed. And now, my dear Jane, what have you got to say on behalf of the interested people who have probably been concerned in the business? Do clear them too, or we shall be obliged to think ill of somebody. Laugh as much as you choose, but you will not laugh me out of my opinion. My dearest Lizzie, do but consider, in what a disgraceful light it places Mr Darcy, to be treating his father's favourite in such a manner, one whom his father had promised to provide for. It is impossible. No man of common humanity, no man who had any value for his character, could be capable of it. Can his most intimate friends be so excessively deceived in him? Oh. No. I can much more easily believe Mr Pingley's being imposed on than that Mr Wickham should invent such a history of himself as he gave me last night with names and facts, everything mentioned without ceremony. If it be not so, let Mr Darcy contradict it. Besides, there was truth in Wickham's looks. It is difficult indeed. It is distressing. One does not know what to think. <laughs> I beg your pardon, one knows exactly what to think. But Jane could think with certainty on only one point, that Mr Bingley, if he had been imposed on, would have much to suffer when the affair became public. The two young ladies were summoned from the shrubbery, where this conversation passed, by the arrival of the very persons of whom they had been speaking. Mr Bingley and his sisters came to give their personal invitation for the long-expected ball at Netherfield, which was fixed for the following Tuesday. Oh, my dear Miss Bennet, you simply must join us. It has been far too long since we have enjoyed your company. And you too, Miss Eliza. Of course. I can only hope that you can be enticed to dance a reel this time. We should be delighted. 
It is so very kind of you to take the trouble to extend such an offer in person. How could we dream of refusing such a compliment? And does not Jane look well? As you can see, she is quite recovered from since we were last together. Very much so, my dear. The colour has come back to your cheeks and... And your smile has returned. Miss Bingley returned her gaze with some warmth to Jane, and Mrs Hurst readily agreed. Indeed, my dear, what news since we've been separated from you? To the rest of the family, they paid little attention, avoiding Mrs Bennet as much as possible, saying not much to Elizabeth and nothing at all to the others. They were soon gone again, rising from their seats, with an activity which took their brother by surprise, and hurrying off as if eager to escape from Mrs. Bennet's civilities. The prospect of the Netherfield Ball was extremely agreeable to every female of the family. Mrs. Bennet chose to consider it as given in compliment to her eldest daughter, and was particularly flattered by receiving the invitation from Mr. Bingley himself, instead of a ceremonious card. Jane pictured to herself a happy evening in the society of her two friends, and the attentions of their brother, and Elizabeth thought with pleasure of dancing a great deal with Mr Wickham, and of seeing a confirmation of everything in Mr Darcy's look and behaviour. The happiness anticipated by Kitty and Lydia depended less on any single event, or any particular person, for though they each, like Elizabeth, meant to dance half the evening with Mr Wickham, he was by no means the only partner who could satisfy them, and a ball was, at any rate, a ball. And even Mary could assure her family that she had no disinclination for it. While I can have my mornings to myself, it is enough. I think it is no sacrifice to join occasionally in evening engagements. Society has claims on us all, and I profess myself one of those who consider intervals of recreation and amusement as desirable for everybody. Elizabeth's spirits were so high on this occasion that though she did not often speak unnecessarily to Mr Collins, she could not help asking him whether he intended to accept Mr Bingley's invitation, and if he did, whether he would think it proper to join the evening's amusement, and she was rather surprised to find that he entertained no scruple whatever on that head, and was very far from dreading a rebuke either from the Archbishop or Lady Catherine de Bourgh by venturing a dance. I am by no means of the opinion, I assure you, that a ball of this kind, given by a young man of character to respectable people, can have any evil tendency, and I am so far from objecting to dancing myself that I shall hope to be honoured with the hands of all my fair cousins in the course of the evening, and I take this opportunity of soliciting yours, Miss Elizabeth, for the first two dancers especially, a preference which I trust my cousin Jane will attribute to the right cause, and not to any disrespect for her. Elizabeth felt herself completely taken in. She had fully proposed being engaged by Mr Wickham for those very dancers, and to have Mr Collins instead. Her liveliness had never been worse timed. There was no help for it, however. Mr Wickham's happiness and her own were perforce delayed a little longer, and Mr Collins' proposal accepted with as good a grace as she could. She was not the better pleased with his gallantry from the idea it suggested of something more. 
it strikes me that perhaps I have been selected from among my sisters as worthy of being the mistress of Huntsford Parsonage, she thought to herself. The idea soon reached to conviction as she observed his increasing civilities towards herself and heard his frequent attempt at a compliment on her wit and vivacity, and though more astonished than gratified herself by this effect of her charms, it was not long before her mother gave her to understand that the probability of their marriage was extremely agreeable to her. Elizabeth, however, did not choose to take the hint, being well aware that a serious dispute must be the consequence of any reply. Mr Collins might never make the offer, and, till he did, it was useless to quarrel about him. If there had not been a Netherfield ball to prepare for and talk of, the younger Miss Bennets would have been in a very pitiable state at this time, for from the day of the invitation to the day of the ball, there was such a succession of rain as prevented their walking to Meryton once. No aunt, no officers, no news could be sought after. The very shoe roses for Netherfield were got by proxy. Even Elizabeth might have found some trial of her patience in weather which totally suspended the improvement of her acquaintance with Mr Wickham, and nothing less than a dance on Tuesday could have made such a Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday endurable to Kitty and Lydia. Chapter 18 Till Elizabeth entered the drawing-room at Netherfield and looked in vain for Mr Wickham among the cluster of redcoats there assembled, a doubt of his being present had never occurred to her. The certainty of meeting him had not been checked by any of those recollections that might not unreasonably have alarmed her. Elizabeth had dressed with more than usual care and prepared in the highest of spirits for the conquest of all that remained unsubdued of his heart, trusting that it was not more than might be won in the course of the evening. But in an instant arose the dreadful suspicion of his being purposely omitted for Mr Darcy's pleasure in the Bingley's invitation to the officers. And though this was not exactly the case, the absolute fact of his absence was pronounced by his friend Denny, to whom Lydia eagerly applied. Mr Wickham asked me to pass on his regret at being divided from your company. He was eager to see you, but was called away to town on business and is not yet returned. I do not imagine that his business would have called him away just now, however if he had not wanted to avoid a certain gentleman. This latter part of his intelligence, though unheard by Lydia, was caught by Elizabeth, and, as it assured her that Darcy was not less answerable for Wickham's absence than if her first surmise had been just, every feeling of displeasure against the former was so sharpened by immediate disappointment that she could hardly reply with tolerable civility which he directly afterwards approached to make. Attendance, forbearance, patience with Darcy was injured by Wickham. She was resolved against any sort of conversation with him and turned away with a degree of ill humour which she could not wholly surmount even in speaking to Mr Bingley, whose blind partiality provoked her. But Elizabeth was not formed for ill humour and though every prospect of her own was destroyed for the evening, it could not dwell long on her spirits and having told all her griefs to Charlotte Lucas, whom she had not seen for a week, 
she was soon able to make a voluntary transition to the oddities of her cousin and to point him out to her particular notice. The first two dancers, however, brought a return of distress. Charlotte, I should call them dancers of mortification. Elizabeth looked despairingly at an ever-patient Charlotte. Mr Collins, awkward and solemn, apologising instead of attending, and often moving wrong without being aware of it, gave her all the shame and misery which a disagreeable partner of a couple of dancers can give. The moment of her release from him was ecstasy. She danced next with an officer, and had the refreshment of talking of Wickham and of hearing that he was universally liked. When those dances were over, she returned to Charlotte Lucas and was in conversation with her when she found herself suddenly addressed by Mr Darcy, who took her so much by surprise in his application for her hand that, without knowing what she did, she accepted him. Miss Bennet, might I have the pleasure of you joining me in the next reel? Certainly. He walked away again immediately, and she was left to fret over her own want of presence of mind. Charlotte tried to console her. I dare say you will find him very agreeable. <laughs> Heaven forbid! Oh, that would be the greatest misfortune of all. To find a man agreeable whom one is determined to hate. <laughs> Charlotte, do not wish me such an evil. Oh. When the dancing recommenced, however, and Darcy approached to claim her hand, Charlotte could not help cautioning her in a whisper. <laughs> Do not be a simpleton, Eliza, and allow your fancy for Wickham to make you appear unpleasant in the eyes of a man ten times his consequence. Elizabeth made no answer and took her place in the set, amazed at the dignity to which she had arrived in being allowed to stand opposite to Mr Darcy and reading in her neighbour's looks their equal amazement to beholding it. They stood for some time without speaking a word, and she began to imagine that their silence was to last through the two dances, and at first was resolved not to break it, till, suddenly fancying that it would be the greater punishment to her partner to oblige him to talk, she made some slight observation on the ball. A fine occasion, is it not? It is. It is your turn to say something now, Mr Darcy. I talked about the dance, and you ought to make some sort of remark on the size of the room, or the number of couples. I assure you that whatever you wish me to say will be said. Very well. Uh, that reply will do for present. Perhaps by and by, I may observe that private balls are much pleasanter than public ones. But uh, now, we may be silent. Do you talk by rule, then, while you're dancing? Sometimes. One must speak a little, you know. It would look odd to be entirely silent for half an hour together. Yet for the advantage of some, conversation ought to be so arranged as that they may have the trouble of saying as little as possible. Are you consulting your own feelings in the present case? Or do you imagine that you are gratifying mine? Both. For I have always seen a great similarity in the turn of our minds. We are each of an unsocial, taciturn disposition, unwilling to speak unless we expect to say something that will amaze the whole room and be handed down to posterity with the eclat 
of a proverb. Well, this is no very striking resemblance of your own character, I'm sure. How near it may be to mine, I cannot pretend to say. You think it a faithful portrait, undoubtedly. I must not decide my own performance. I wonder, do you and your sisters walk very often to Meryton? Yes. In fact, when you met us there the other day, we had just been forming a new acquaintance with a Mr. Wickham. The effect was immediate. A deeper shade of hauteur overspread his features, but he said not a word, and Elizabeth, though blaming herself for her own weakness, could not go on. At length, Darcy spoke, though it was in something of a constrained manner. Mr. Wickham is blessed with such happy manners as may ensure his making friends. Whether he may be equally capable of retaining them is less certain. Well, he has been so unlucky as to lose your friendship, and in a manner which he is likely to suffer from all his life. Darcy made no answer, and seemed desirous of changing the subject. At that moment, Sir William Lucas appeared close to them, meaning to pass through the set to the other side of the room, but on perceiving Mr. Darcy, he stopped with a bow of superior courtesy to compliment him on his dancing and his partner. I have been most highly gratified indeed, my dear sir. Such very superior dancing is not often seen. It is evident that you belong to the first circles. Allow me to say, however, that your fair partner does not disgrace you, and that I must hope to have this pleasure often repeated, especially when a certain desirable event, my dear Eliza, shall take place. What congratulations will then flow in? <laughs> I appeal to Mr. Darcy. But let me not interrupt you, sir. You will not thank me for detaining you from the bewitching converse of that young lady whose bright eyes are also upbraiding me. The latter part of this address was scarcely heard by Darcy, but Sir William's allusions to his friend seemed to strike him forcibly, and his eyes were directed with a very serious expression towards Bingley and Jane, who were dancing together. Recovering himself, however, shortly... He turned to his partner and said, Sir William's interruption has made me forget what we were talking of. I do not think we were speaking at all. Sir William could not have interrupted two people in the room who had less to say for themselves. We have tried two or three subjects already without success, and what we are to talk of next I cannot imagine. What think you of books? Books? Oh, no. I am sure we never read the same. Or... Not with the same feelings. I'm sorry that you think so. But if that be the case, there can at least be no want of subject. We may compare our different opinions. Oh, no, no, I... No, I, I cannot talk of books in a ballroom. My head is always full of something else. Something else, yes. The presence always occupies you in such scenes, does it? Yes, always, Elizabeth replied without knowing what she said, for her thoughts had wandered far from the subject, and this was soon afterwards apparent by her sudden exclamation. I remember hearing you once say, Mr Darcy, that you hardly ever forgave. 
that your resentment once created was unappeasable. You are very cautious, I suppose, as to its being created. I am. His reply was given quickly, but his tone was firm. And never allow yourself to be blinded by prejudice. I hope not. It is particularly incumbent on those who never change their opinion to be secure of judging it properly at first. May I ask to what these questions tend? Merely to the illustration of your character. I am trying to make it out. And what is your success? I do not get on at all. I hear such different accounts of you as to puzzle me exceedingly. I can readily believe that reports may vary greatly with respect to me. And I could wish, Miss Bennet, that you were not to sketch my character at the present moment, as there is reason to fear that the performance would reflect no credit on either. But if I do not take your likeness now, I may never have another opportunity. I would by no means suspend any pleasure of yours. She said no more, and they went down the other dance and parted in silence, and on each side dissatisfied, though not to an equal degree. For in Darcy's breast there was a tolerable, powerful feeling towards her, which soon procured her pardon and directed all his anger against another. They had not long been separated when Miss Bingley came towards her and with an expression of civil disdain accosted her. So, Miss Eliza, I hear you are quite delighted with George Wickham. Your sister has been talking to me about him and asking me a thousand questions. And... I find that the young man quite forgot to tell you, among his other communication, that he was the son of old Wickham, the late Mr. Darcy's steward. Let me recommend you, however, as a friend, not to give implicit confidence to all his assertions, for as to Mr. Darcy's using him ill, it is perfectly false, for on the contrary, he has always been remarkably kind to him, though George Wickham has treated Mr. Darcy in a most infamous manner. I do not know the particulars, but I know very well that Mr. Darcy is not in the least to blame, that he cannot bear to hear George Wickham mentioned, and that though my brother thought that he could not well avoid including him in his invitation to the officers, he was excessively glad to find that he had taken himself out of the way. His coming into the country at all is a most insolent thing indeed, and I wonder how he could presume to do it. I pity you, Miss Eliza, for this discovery of your favourite's guilt, but really, considering his descent... One could not expect much better. His guilt and his descent appear by your account to be one and the same, for I have heard you accuse him of nothing worse than of being the son of Mr. Darcy's steward. And of that I can assure you. Mr. Wickham informed me himself. I beg your pardon. Excuse my interference. It was kindly meant. Ah, insolent girl, you are much mistaken if you expect to influence me by 
such a paltry attack as this, I see nothing in it but your own willful ignorance <laughs> and the malice of Mr. Darcy. Elizabeth then sought her eldest sister, who had undertaken to make inquiries on the same subject of Bingley. Jane met her with a smile of such sweet complacency, a glow of such happy expression, as sufficiently marked how well she was satisfied with the occurrences of the evening. Elizabeth instantly read her feelings, and at that moment, solicitude for Wickham, resentment against his enemies and everything else, gave way before the hope of Jane's being in the fairest way of happiness. Jane, I want to know what you have learned about Mr Wickham, but perhaps you have been too pleasantly engaged <clears throat> to think of any third person, in which case you may be sure of my pardon. No, I have not forgotten him, but I have nothing satisfactory to tell you. Mr Bingley does not know the whole of his history and is quite ignorant of the circumstances which have principally offended Mr Darcy, but he will vouch for the good conduct, the probity and honour of his friend and is perfectly convinced that Mr Wickham has deserved much less attention from Mr Darcy than he has received. And I'm sorry to say by his account as well as his sister's, Mr Wickham is by no means a respectable young man. I'm afraid he's been very imprudent and has deserved to lose Mr Darcy's regard. Mr Bingley does not know Mr Wickham himself? No. He never saw him till the other morning at Meryton. This account, then, is what he has received from Mr Darcy. I am satisfied. But what does he say of the living? He does not exactly recollect the circumstances, though he has heard them from Mr Darcy more than once. But he believes that it was left to him conditionally only. I have not a doubt of Mr Bingley's sincerity. But you must excuse my not being convinced by assurances only, Jane. Mr Bingley's defence of his friend is a very able one, I dare say. But since he is unacquainted with several parts of the story and has learned the rest from that friend himself, I shall venture to still think of both gentlemen as I did before. She then changed the discourse to one more gratifying to each, and on which there could be no difference of sentiment. Elizabeth listened with delight to the happy, though modest hopes, which Jane entertained of Mr Bingley's regard, and said all in her power to heighten her confidence in it. On their being joined by Mr Bingley himself, Elizabeth withdrew to Miss Lucas, to whose inquiry, after the pleasantness of her last partner, she had scarcely replied, before Mr Collins came up to them, and told her with great exultation that he had just been so fortunate as to make the most important discovery. I have found out by a singular accident that there is now in the room a near relation of my patroness. I happened to overhear the gentleman himself mentioning to the, the young lady who does the honours of the house uh, the names of his cousin, Mr. Berg, and of her mother, Lady Catherine. Oh, how wonderfully these sort of things occur... Who would have thought of my meeting with, uh, perhaps, a nephew of Lady Catherine de Bourgh in this assembly? I am most thankful that the discovery is made in time for me to pay my respects to him, which I am now going to do, and trust he will excuse my not having done it before. 
My total ignorance of the connection must plead my apology. You are not going to introduce yourself to Mr. Darcy? Indeed I am. I shall entreat his pardon for not having done it earlier. I believe him to be Lady Catherine's nephew. It will be in my power to assure him that her ladyship was quite well yesterday said night. Mr. Collins, cousin... I fear Mr. Darcy might consider your addressing him without introduction as something of an impertinent freedom, rather than as a compliment to his aunt. I do not believe it the least bit necessary that there should be any notice on either side, but if there were, it certainly must belong to Mr. Darcy, the superior in consequence, to begin such an acquaintance. My dear Miss Elizabeth... I have the highest opinion in the world in your excellent judgment in all matters, within the scope of your understanding. But permit me to say that there must be a wide difference between the established forms of ceremony amongst the laity and those which regulate the clergy. For give me leave to observe that I consider the clerical office as equal in point of dignity with the highest rank in the kingdom provided that a proper humility of behaviour is at the same time maintained. You must, therefore, allow me to follow the dictates of my conscience on this occasion, uh, which leads me to perform what I look on as a point of duty. Pardon me for neglecting to profit by your advice, uh, which on every other subject shall be my constant guide. Though in the case before us, I consider myself more fitted by education and habitual study to decide on what is right than a young lady like yourself. And with a low bow, he left her to attack Mr. Darcy, whose reception of his advances she eagerly watched, and whose astonishment at being so addressed was very evident. Her cousin prefaced his speech with a solemn bow, and though she could not hear a word of it, she felt as if hearing it all, and saw in the motion of his lips the words Apology and Huntsford and Lady Catherine de Bourgh. It vexed her to see him expose himself to such a man. Mr Darcy was eyeing him with unrestrained wonder, and when at last Mr Collins allowed him time to speak, replied with an air of distant civility. Mr Collins, however, was not discouraged from speaking again and Mr. Darcy's contempt seemed abundantly increasing with the length of his second speech, and at the end of it he only made him a slight bow and moved another way. Mr. Collins then returned to Elizabeth. I have no reason, I assure you, to be dissatisfied with my reception. He answered me with the utmost civility, and even paid me the compliment of saying that he was so well convinced of Lady Catherine's discernment as to be certain she could never bestow a favour unworthily. It was really a very handsome thought. Upon the whole, I am much pleased with him. As Elizabeth had no longer any interest of her own to pursue, she turned her attention almost entirely on her sister and Mr Bingley, and the train of agreeable reflections which her observations gave birth to made her perhaps almost as happy as Jane. She saw her in idea settled in that very house, in all the felicity which a marriage of true affection could bestow, and she felt capable, under such circumstances, of endeavouring even to like Bingley's two sisters. Her mother's thoughts, she plainly saw, were bent the same way, and she determined not to venture near her, 
lest she might hear too much. When they sat down to supper, therefore, she considered it a most unlucky perverseness which placed them within one of each other, and deeply was she vexed to find that her mother was talking to that one person, Lady Lucas, freely, openly, and of nothing else but her expectation that Jane would soon be married to Mr. Bingley. It was an animating subject, and Mrs. Bennet seemed incapable of fatiguing while enumerating the advantages of the match. Oh, but he is a charming young man, and so rich. <laughs> and imagine them living but three miles from Longbourn. Just think. <laughs> oh, and it is such a comfort to think how fond both Miss Bingley and Mrs. Hurst are of Jane. Indeed, who could not be? She is such a sweet and handsome girl. They must desire the connection as much as I do. <laughs> oh, but it is, moreover, such a promising thing for my younger daughters, too. Jane's marrying so greatly cannot help but throw them in the way of other rich men. <laughs> How pleasant at my time of life to be able to consign my single daughters to the care of their sister, that I might not be obliged to go into company more than I should like. Hmm. It was, of course, necessary to make this circumstance a matter of pleasure, because on such occasions it is the etiquette. But no one was less likely than Mrs. Bennet to find comfort in staying home at any period of her life. She concluded, with many good wishes, that Lady Lucas might soon be equally fortunate, though evidently and triumphantly, believing that there was no chance of it. In vain did Elizabeth endeavour to check the rapidity of her mother's words, or persuade her to describe her felicity in a less audible whisper, for, to her inexpressible vexation, she could perceive that the chief of it was overheard by Mr Darcy, who sat opposite them. Mama, Mama, please, lower your voice, I beg of you. I fear Mr Darcy could not avoid hearing your commentary. Her mother only scolded her for being nonsensical. What is Mr. Darcy to me? Pray that I should be afraid of him. I'm sure we owe him no such particular civility as to be obliged to say nothing he may not like to hear. Oh, heaven's sake, madame, speak lower. What advantage can it be for you to offend Mr. Darcy? You will never recommend yourself to his friend by so doing. Nothing she could say, however had any influence, her mother would talk of her views in the same intelligible tone. Elizabeth blushed and blushed again with shame and vexation. She could not help frequently glancing her eye at Mr Darcy, though every glance convinced her of what she dreaded. For though he was not always looking at her mother, she was convinced that his attention was invariably fixed by her. The expression of his face changed gradually from indignant contempt to a composed and steady gravity. At length, however, Mrs. Bennet had no more to say, and Lady Lucas, who had been long yawning at the repetition of delights which she saw no likelihood of sharing, was left to the comforts of cold ham and chicken. Elizabeth now began to revive. But not long was the interval of tranquillity, for when supper was over, singing was talked of, 
and she had the mortification of seeing Mary, after very little entreaty, preparing to oblige the company. By many significant looks and silent entreaties, did she endeavour to prevent such a proof of complacence, but in vain, Mary would not understand them. Such an opportunity of exhibiting was delightful to her, and she began her song. Elizabeth's eyes were fixed on her with most painful sensations, and she watched her progress through the several stanzas with an impatience which was very ill-rewarded at their close. For Mary, on receiving amongst the thanks of the table the hint of a hope that she might be prevailed on to favour them again, after the pause of half a minute, began another. Mary's powers were by no means fitted for such a display. Her voice was weak and her manner affected. Elizabeth was in agonies. She looked at Jane to see how she bore it, but Jane was very composedly talking to Bingley. She looked at his two sisters and saw them making signs of derision at each other and at Darcy, who continued, however, imperturbably grave. She looked at her father to entreat his interference, lest Mary should be singing all night. He took the hint, and when Mary finished her second song, said aloud, That will do extremely well, child. Let the other young ladies have time to exhibit. Mary, though pretending not to hear, was somewhat disconcerted, and Elizabeth, sorry for her, and sorry for her father's speech, was afraid her anxiety had done no good. Others of the party were now applied to. If I were so fortunate as to be able to sing, I should have great pleasure, I am sure, in obliging the company with an air, for I consider music as a very innocent diversion and perfectly compatible with the profession of a clergyman. I do not mean, however, to assert that we can be justified in devoting too much of our time to music, for there are certainly other things to be attended to. The rector of a parish has much to do. In the first place, he must make such an agreement for tithes as may be beneficial to himself and not offensive to his patron. He must write his own sermons and the time that remains will not be too much for his parish duties and the care and improvement of his dwelling, which he cannot be excused from making as comfortable as possible. And I do not think it of light importance that he should have attentive and conciliatory manner towards everybody, especially towards those to whom he owes his preferment. I cannot acquit him of that duty. Uh, nor could I think well of the man who should omit an occasion of testifying his respect towards anybody connected with the family. And with a bow to Mr Darcy, he concluded his speech, which had been spoken so loud as to be heard by half the room. Many stared, many smiled, but none looked more amused than Mr Bennet himself, while his wife seriously commended Mr Collins for having spoken so sensibly and observed in a half-whisper to Lady Lucas that he was a remarkably clever, good kind of young man. To Elizabeth, it appeared that, had her family made an agreement to expose themselves as much as they could during an evening, it would have been impossible for them to play their parts with more spirit or finer success. And happy did she think it, for Bingley and her sister, that some of the exhibition had escaped his notice, and that his feelings were not of a sort to be much distressed by the folly which he must have witnessed. That his two sisters and Mr. Darcy, however, should have such an opportunity of ridiculing her relations was bad enough, and she could not determine whether the silent contempt of the gentlemen or the insolent smiles of the ladies were more intolerable. 
The rest of the evening brought her little amusement. She was teased by Mr. Collins, who continued most perseveringly by her side, and though he could not prevail on her to dance with him again, put it out of her power to dance with others. In vain did she entreat him to stand up with somebody else and offer to introduce him to any young lady in the room. He assured her that as to dancing, he was perfectly indifferent to it, that his chief object was by delicate attentions to recommend himself to her, and that he should therefore make a point of remaining close to her the whole evening. There was no arguing upon such a subject. She owed her greatest relief to her friend Miss Lucas, who often joined them and good-naturedly engaged Mr. Collins' conversation to herself. She was at least free of the offence of Mr. Darcy's further notice, though often, standing within a very short distance of her, quite disengaged, he never came near enough to speak. She felt it to be the probable consequence of her illusions to Mr. Wickham and rejoiced in it. The Longbourn party were the last of all the company to depart, and, by a manoeuvre of Mrs. Bennet, had to wait for their carriage a quarter of an hour after everybody else was gone, which gave them time to see how heartily they were wished away by some of the family. Mrs. Hurst and her sister scarcely opened their mouths, except to complain of fatigue, and were evidently impatient to have the house to themselves. They repulsed every attempt of Mrs. Bennet at conversation, and by doing so, threw a languor over the whole party, which was very little relieved by the long speeches of Mr. Collins, who was complimenting Mr. Bingley and his sisters on the elegance of their entertainment, and the hospitality and politeness which had marked their behaviour to their guests. Mr. Darcy said nothing at all. Mr. Bennet, in equal silence, was enjoying the scene. Mr. Bingley and Jane were standing together, a little detached from the rest and only talking to each other. Elizabeth preserved as steady a silence as either Mrs. Hurst or Miss Bingley, and even Lydia was too much fatigued to utter more than the occasional exclamation of, Lord, how tired I am, accompanied by a violent yawn. Lord! How tired am I? When, at length, they arose to take leave, Mrs. Bennet was most pressingly civil in a hope of seeing the whole family soon at Longbourn, and addressed herself especially to Mr. Bingley. I assure you, we should be delighted to welcome you to join us at Longbourn for a family dinner at any time, without the ceremony of a formal invitation. How very kind, Mrs. Bennet. I shall gladly accept your offer at the earliest opportunity, upon my return from London. As her face fell with his revelation, he expressed some regret that he was obliged to go the next day for a short time. Mrs. Bennet was perfectly satisfied, and quitted the house under the delightful persuasion that, allowing for the necessary preparations of settlements, new carriages, and wedding clothes, she should undoubtedly see her daughter settled at Netherfield in the course of three or four months. On having another daughter married to Mr. Collins, she thought with equal certainty, and with considerable, though not equal, pleasure. Elizabeth was the least dear to her of all her children, and though the man and the match were quite good enough for her, the worth of each was eclipsed by Mr. Bingley and Netherfield. What exactly were they eating for supper at the ball? Why does a slug have four noses? 
This and more questions we will not answer in our next episode of Ballarat National Theatre's adaptation of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. This production is directed by Liana Skews, narrated by Olivia French and adapted for audio by Elizabeth Bradford, Olivia French and Liana Skews. This episode features the voices of Olivia French as Elizabeth Bennett, Liana Skews as Jane Bennett, Lana Spencer as Louisa Hurst, Marley Vanderbale as Caroline Bingley, Kiralee McCalla as Mary Bennett, James Waite as Mr. Denny, Ryan O'Connor as Mr. Darcy, Ebony McLean as Charlotte Lucas, Nicholas Barker Pendry as Sir William Lucas, Shannon Nichols as Mr. Collins, Liz Hardiman as Mrs. Bennett, Chris Hiscock as Mr. Bennett, Paul Roberts as Mr. Bingley, Daisy Kate Kennington as Lydia Bennett, and a special appearance by an annoying little kitten that pooped in my lap in the middle of editing this episode. This podcast was produced by Ballarat National Theatre on the lands of our traditional custodians, the Wathaurong people. Cast recordings were made in the lands of the Wathaurong, Jarjarwarong, Boonwarong and Bidjigal people. Ballarat National Theatre acknowledges and pays respect to our traditional custodians and to their past, present and emerging leaders. 